Donna, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I'm excited. <laughs> Wonderful. So if you don't mind, uh, how about we kick this thing off? That'd be great. May I ask, uh, where are you from or where are you these days? Mm -hmm. I was born in Los Angeles. I grew up in Orange County. When I was growing up there, it was really awful. I mean, mm -hmm. it's awful now in a different way, but it was... Um, <laughs> it was very awful. And we were the only Jewish family on the peninsula where I grew up. Mm. And uh, then I left, fled as soon as I can when I was 18, wandered around different colleges and conservatories and ended out in the Netherlands. And I lived there for 22 years. Oh, wow. So that that is a, a completely new life, different experience. I imagine that um, taught you a lot of, uh, about our culture. Were there some things that you were at odds with, um, with that culture as you went in? No. Um, <laughs> you, f you felt right at home. Well, not that either. <laughs> I, um, so my, my uncle was Dutch. Oh, okay. But, um, nobody believed him. Everybody thought he was German and trying to pass. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, my aunt and uncle lived in England and in France and in New York. They lived all over the place. And I'd been with them a lot because my aunt was my favorite person. So I'd been to England many times. I'd been to France many times. I thought, oh, I'll be fine. It's Europe. <laughs> but Europe doesn't really exist. It's just there's a lot. All those countries are so different. You know, it's not, it's not one place. So mm. I wasn't expecting the culture shock that came at me full force. I was I in see. such culture shock. I see. Having gone through that experience, when did you find writing? Was it along your travels or was it when you were younger? I'm just writing an essay about this because somebody else asked the same question. <laughs> um, I started writing when I was a kid. I mean, I remember when I was in six years old in the first grade and Mrs. Bowles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've got those wonderful um, sheets of writing, lined writing paper. The, you know, the H has to be this high. And the, mm -hmm. do you remember those? Did yeah. you get those? Yeah. And um, I loved those. And, and you know, she, we, I wrote a story and she put it up on the board and said, this is great and you should write more. <laughs> bless those teachers. But really, so bless those teachers. <laughs> and my childhood was turbulent and there were some bad things, and it was good to have that. So I wrote on and off all my life. I wrote a lot in high school. I wrote, you know, poetry and essays for my friends who couldn't write. Mm. <laughs> I got <laughs> stuck cheating sometimes. But um, but it was always, I never thought I, I'm going to be a writer. That just, I wrote. That was who I was. And then um, I went to San Francisco State during the, Hayakawa, when Hayakawa was there, during the riots. That was my, mm. I fled Orange County, where I was incredibly sheltered, and got to San Francisco State, and people were killing one another on campus. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and my parents had both been in the Communist Party. Mm. And so I, I had a file. <laughs> oh, wow. Really? It was just surreal. It was surreal. And so here I am living in the dorms, where the dorms right above the 
cafeteria where if you look back at the news and all this, that's the cafeteria is where a lot of the SDS meetings were and where mm. people did get shot. So it was interesting. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That was something of an awakening then for you to, to be coming from a, a sheltered, you know, perhaps troubled place to, to something of a wider scope, something that was definitely more imposing than anything that you had come up against. It right? was really an awakening. I mean, I grew up around purely white people mm -hmm. and they were mean as shit to me because I was not considered white. Mm -hmm. I was Jewish. Yeah. And so here finally were all of these other people that also weren't being treated well. Mm. I don't know, it was, it was incredibly eye-opening, but it was a long distance for me to have to travel as spiritually and mentally, you know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. I didn't travel it right away. I, um, I, I didn't go back to San Francisco State. I left mm. after that first year and was just lost and went to Cal State Dominguez Hills. <laughs> mm. And, as, and studied psychology, and it was at the time there were no grades and basically no classes. I wrote poetry to pass my physics class. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and I was living in a commune, living in a commune, yeah, and um, I picked up the flute. And I thought, this, this is what I need to do. My mom was a musician. Mm. I said, this is it, this is what I want. I have to do this, and I was you know, 18. It's a little bit late to start music if you want to be a professional musician. So, um, but Cal Arts at the time um, had this policy that if you were accepted into the school, have you ever been up to Cal Arts? I have not. No. Okay, it's it, it's um, it's probably different now, but it, there's a quad, and the quad is like it located in the middle of the school, and you all the different corners of the different schools, you know, film, dance, mm. creative writing. And you could cross the quad and change majors. So I thought, I'm, I'm never going to get into music because I haven't been playing. I've like been playing for eight months. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to take me. <laughs> Maybe I can get in as a writer. So I pulled together all my writing and uh, applied as, as a poet <laughs> and got in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Clayton Eshelman was running the program at the time. Um, and he just wasn't my cup of tea. But I wanted to play flute. So I got in and I crossed the quad and changed <laughs> it. Oh. Yeah, it's all, I'm not making any of this up, but it's a great story. So I changed majors. And the thing was that the rule was you could do that. But the woman who, the flute teacher was like, what now? I have mm. to hear you play. So I was assigned to her assistant. Her assistant was my teacher, this Georgia Mohammer, a Swedish girl, lovely girl, um, who was like younger than me <laughs> and um, astounded at, you know, how amateurish my playing was, I'm sure. Like, how did you get in here? <laughs> and, and they was like, you know, Jill's got Jill, it was the, Jill Shires was the main flute player. The, and she, every time they said, Jill's got to hear you play, she's coming to your lesson today, I'd call in sick. <laughs> you just couldn't face it at I, the time. No, I knew I would, I knew I would never get in. Mm. And I practiced so hard. I just lived in the practice rooms, just practiced 12 hours a day. And um, finally, Jill figured it out that if she announced herself, she, I wasn't going to come. So she showed up. But by that time, I'd been there for about eight months. Mm. 
and she took me. Wow, she did. Yep. And thus began. <laughs> and so that's how I began to seriously study flute. Mm. And like, so from your bio, you mentioned that you follow your flute teacher to the Netherlands. But one curious thing sticks out for me, which is that the only way for Dutch, for you to access Dutch culture, culture was through their poets. That's right. And I'm curious what you mean by that or what that connection was. So I hated the flute style in America. And then Franz Mester came and did a master class at CalArts. And just, I really had an affinity for that playing and he liked me. So he dared, he said, I dare you to come. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, who's going to pick up and just go to this tiny country? So don't dare me. I go. I went. And I showed up. And once again, and that's when I thought I'd be fine because I'd spent so many years of my life in Europe. But I was unfine. Mm. And I didn't speak the language. And he wouldn't speak English to me, basically. It was like, you're going to learn. And... Um, I somehow, I ran into this book. I'm in the bookstore, you know, just lost, but I loved the bookstore. And there was this book of a thousand of the most important Dutch poems by Gerrit Komrijd's collection. Mm -hmm. And I picked up that book and I, it was thick and I took it with me everywhere. And I just worked out these poems word by word. And that's where I felt homish. Mm -hmm. Because isn't the poetry the soul of the nation in so many ways? So I plundered, blundered my way with my bad Dutch. <laughs> and, you know, I would translate it. And I, by that time, I'd made a couple of wonderful friends. One who turned, who ended up being a translator. And she would sit with me in the park, in the Fumble Park, and help me work out these poems so that I could send them to my mom. Like, Here's what I'm reading, mom. They're so great. Because a lot of them aren't translated. Mm. So well, that's a beautiful connection to your new world and then the old world. It, it seemed like it became a thread for you that kind of tied everything together at the moment when it seemed fairly chaotic from the sound of it. Yep. Yes. Chaos. I would say my life has that. <laughs> and, and so poetry just became really important to me. And of course I started writing again, but I did not take it seriously. Mm. I just, I mean, it was just a lifeline. It's always been a companion. But I never thought, oh, somebody else should read this. Um, mm -hmm. And then all sorts of stuff happened, and I got married, and I had a child, and um, still really involved in reading poetry in Holland, but and writing. But mm. and then we moved back to the states, mm. and I thought, easy peasy, I've lived here before. <laughs> <laughs> but no, because I'd lived here as a as a hippie, as a child, as somebody who could barely pay the bills. Mm -hmm. And now I came home with a daughter and a husband and had to find a job. And I was, by that time, a responsible scientist. And um, I, I, I had no fucking idea, pardon the language. <laughs> yeah. How do you navigate this society? So culture shock again in my own country. Yeah. And back to reading a lot of poetry. And my, my husband, who was a scientist, I skipped the whole science part of my life. But. <laughs> so in Holland, I studied flute. I was going to be there for a year. It wasn't long enough. Mm -hmm. I ended up 
doing my entire degree over. So I did a new master's degree with Franz. Mm, I see. Okay. And then playing professionally and um, married, divorced, playing professionally. But I had an itch. So playing professionally, reading a lot of poetry and like, you know, practicing an instrument day in, day out, it's not intellectually stimulating. Mm. You know, you're not thinking big ideas here. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I was, <laughs> my car broke down and I was doing an opera gig in Rotterdam and they paid for a taxi to drive me back to Amsterdam where I was living. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're going back to Amsterdam, we drive past this building that they used to call the coffin. And I said <laughs> to the taxi driver, what's that building actually? And he said, oh, that's the psychology department from the University of Amsterdam. He said, oh. And he said, yeah, they just started this new part-time evening program. That's why the lights are on. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, um, you know, let me out. <laughs> it's, it's, I can walk home. It was pretty close. So mm-hmm. up, you know, in my long black gown with my flute cut to my breast, up I went and I met this funny little man and I said, gee, I hear you have a part-time program. I don't know if you know anything about academia, but if people start part-time evening programs, that means they need money. Mm. <laughs> they need bodies. They'll take anything. <laughs> so I said, gee, I would love to do it. And he said, oh, okay, great. You know, so um, you've got high school. Yes, in the United States. Oh, that doesn't really count. Because um, you don't get the same education. But you have other degrees. I said, well, I've actually got two master's degrees. And conservatory, and he said, but that's a trade school. <laughs> that doesn't, you know, you need some radiation. <laughs> so, and you need special dispensation to join this program because you don't have the credentials. He said, I'll write a letter for you, but I can't really do anything until you get the Ministry of Education, like Hogwarts, to agree to this. <laughs> so I went home, sort of forgot about it. A few weeks later, I got this letter. By then, my Dutch was excellent. Mm-hmm. I got this letter and I couldn't read a word of it. Gee, this is, you know, this is civil servant language. I have no idea what these words mean. And I and I didn't know. I sat on my table for a few days and finally I thought maybe that funny little man at psychology. So I grabbed the letter and I went up over to the psych building and I went upstairs to Hank, the funny little man. And I said, "Do you know what this is? Can can you translate it for me?" He said, "Um, oh, you don't really need to know what it says. What it means is you've got class tonight at eight. <laughs> oh that's so wild it is um i, I yeah. it feels like you you were receptive every step of the way for something that would make sense to you maybe not rationally but just intuitively right something kind yeah. of felt right and you had to go follow it right and so psychology it was um a part-time program which means to get your bachelor's degree was four years and to get your match master's was eight. Oh, wow. <laughs> but I didn't, I was playing flute. I was teaching. I was fine. This, this gave me what I wanted, you know, something else to go out. Mm. So I sort of blindly followed the program, but it was a part-time program in the evening. And there was, you know, there was great dissent among the, among the teachers, the university people, they didn't want to teach this program. Oh, you know, it I was see. like, I don't want to teach from eight to 10 on Tuesday night. I went home. Yeah. Not what I signed up for. <laughs> and so 
things were not run very smoothly. Mm. But and I said, you know, I work, I have concerts. So if you move my exams at the last minute to a night that I play, I can't, it's got to be a little bit better organized. Mm -hmm. What you guys need is an evening study dean, somebody specifically for the evening study. Long story short, they said, okay, fine, you do it. <laughs> so, and by that time, I was really tired of teaching. I still played, but I didn't want to teach anymore. Mm -hmm. So I quit my teaching gig and I did that. And then, you know, people sort of got to know me. And long story short, I ended up doing my PhD and just leaving professional music. Oh, wow. So that, at that Which point, really oh, go ahead. Off. It was like ripping out a rib, but. Mm. Yeah. Did you ever get back to it? Did you ever do performance again? Yes, I tried, but it was, you know, it's all or nothing music. Yeah. Classical music, all or nothing. Mm-hmm. And I just wasn't good enough then for myself, you know? Mm -hmm. It sort of became, it seems like it became diminishing returns. And, and at that point, it seemed like this was the, the better path to go. So it, now that we've set the stage, it does seem like you, you come back to the U.S. with pretty much a, you know, a series of, of journeys already lived. And right. You're, you're having to contend with the assimilation process of your own country. How long does that take or does that ever go away now that you're back in the, in the U.S.? You know, it never goes away, but I would say every serious assimilation process takes about five to seven years. Five to seven years. Yeah. When we came back, my, my husband had been a TA in one of my classes and had a, a really good job. In Holland and I had just gotten a good job so we were both in good university jobs but he really wanted to be warm you know mm -hmm. and yeah. he also was really miserable in academia and wanted to change careers and go into art I see and he's a wonderful artist and I thought you know I changed careers life's too short mm -hmm. so let's do it so when we came back here I was going to be the breadwinner for a while, and he was going to go to art school. So he went to Otis, College of Art and Design, and I ended up teaching at USC. Mm -hmm. And um, he became friends with this group of crazy people, wonderful people, they, who ran the creative writing department at Otis. Mm -hmm. And they would come over for dinner, and we would drink way too much wine. <laughs> and... Somehow it came out that I wrote and Paul got me to show him something. He, he ran the program mm -hmm. and he said, okay, you got to just come to the program. <laughs> and you know, it's part-time. <laughs> <laughs> it's a recurring theme. <laughs> I feel like my life keeps rolling over and, and it was a part-time program and they needed bodies and I was a body and wrote, you know, so he said, no, you, you can come. It'll be great. So I have a really good friend who's a novelist. And I talked her into it, and we went together. Oh, so that's nice. You got to have a companion there as you embarked on once again another, another journey there. Five years degree. <laughs> oh, it was a five year. Oh, wow. It's a two year master's degree, but I was part 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 time because yeah. I was working full time. Yeah. So at this point, you're you're up to how many master's degrees? Because this is I have four. <laughs> yeah, I have four. Yeah. Is this something that, because it doesn't seem like you were consciously thinking of, 
I'm bettering myself, I'm doing this, and I'm going to have these accolades or these degrees. You were just, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, is it like you were just going along for this journey, for this adventure to see? It's kind of embarrassing, but I had no, there was no plan involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think it's an admirable trait. I mean, I, I think a lot of us deny certain impulses to, to pursue avenues and opportunities. And I think this is really a great example of the good that comes from that. And you'll have to tell me if at the time you felt like it was a good decision or if any of these felt like they were the right decision. They all did. Yeah. It was all, and it wasn't right or wrong. I never thought of it that way. And, you know, now I've spent so many years in academia counseling kids Mm. and I watched them take these really measured decisions. And I think, man, (laughs) that's not how I work. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, but I came from, I had some, I, when my dad died, he left us enough money for me to be an idiot. You know, so some of these kids, they have, they have to take other things into account. Mm. I don't know that right. it helped them, though, because it's still the same decision. <laughs> right. They're, they're creating certain barriers for themselves without needing to, if that's... They're, I, I, I can't say that for sure because I'm not them. Mm-hmm. But boy, this is the age of careful decision making, and I don't see these decisions as being any better. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're so painful. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Uh, yeah. There is sort of like this um, added stress to to our newer generations who feel like they have to be uh, perfect. Or maybe that's always been the case. I mean, I'm speaking in generalities, but it does seem like this generation is more measured, uh, for sure. Uh, it does. It does to yeah. me. So coming back to to the poetry journey, which is now starting in the in the timeline, what were some takeaways from that program? Did you feel like you you made leaps and bounds as a poet, or did it just reaffirm some intuitions that you had already had? None of that. Um, I yeah. ended out not doing poetry, but creative writing, because I'm a woman who has avoided poetry all my life because it's so hard for me yeah. and because it makes me cry. Mm. You know, when I hit something true. Yeah. 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 And, and so, and it's, it's, it's always scared me and I've always thought I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. And I, so I ended up doing creative writing instead of poetry. I'm such a jerk. Um, <laughs> but also that meant that I could, my friend did creative writing so we could be in all the same classes. But I did a lot of poetry on the side, and you know th- that program was chaos. So you just did whatever the heck you wanted. <laughs> and what it's not like I oh I learned so much about poetry. You know, no offense, Otis, but it was not that great of a program. <laughs> um, but I learned, I learned to incorporate writing back into my everyday life. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest gift. You know? Yeah. So what was? It's, I know it's difficult to articulate because I completely empathize with you in this idea that there are certain forms that are overpowering, overwhelming when mm-hmm. we experience them. And I feel kind of that same way with poetry. It is an intimidating form for me because English is my second language. And ever since I was 10 years old, there was a certain kind of barrier that I myself added to it. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious if you could identify what were the things that that kept you at arm's length of the thing that you wanted to do for so long? The image I have is of poetry standing behind me, and I've got my back to her, and I'm terrified that I won't 
be any good. Mm. And I'm also terrified that once I turn around, that's it. Then I've committed. Mm. And I turned around in 2013. I finally turned around. Then I know exactly when I turned around. Yeah. Could you describe that that moment, that release, when you made that decision? And how did that look like in terms of taking action towards that poetry life, if we can call it that? So back to my friend Darcy, who went <laughs> with me to the program. She went to Breadloaf in 2012. Mm-hmm. And she said, you'd love this. You should come. And, you know, I was still going along writing these stupid short stories and being a professor in psychology and making my career and being important, being Dr. Metz. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and for a female who has, who grew up in an area that I was not only, you know, I, that I was just really second-class citizen, mm-hmm. being Dr. Metz is super important. So um, anyway, she said you should come. And I didn't know anything about Breadloaf. I didn't know anything about the writing world. Mm-hmm. You know, I said, oh, well, sure, Darcy can go. I can go. Why not? <laughs> and so I applied as a poet, and I got in. Mm-hmm. And only when I got there did I realize that, Jesus, this is the real deal. I mean, these are Carl Phillips is here. I mean, if these people take me seriously. And it was just mm-hmm. like I turned around and poetry the vice of her grip. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was it. That was it. Yeah. So from that point, you felt completely liberated to engage in a positive way or in a healthier way with this form that had sort of evaded you or that you had been avoiding for, for a lot of your life. It, you, it seems like there was a completeness now that allowed you to move forward. Yeah. Did you develop a a procedure for writing, or what did you feel like you needed to write about to continue that progression? Oh. Mm. <laughs> um, so before I went to Breadloaf, I'd been working with Sarah Mangusa, who's just amazing. I just, my pretty much my childhood, and mm. all the weird shit that went down in my childhood. Mm-hmm. It was pretty autobiographical, and I didn't like that. I, I wanted to observe the world, not just my inner bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you don't get to choose, which is one of the things that terrified me about poetry. You don't mm-hmm. really get to choose, or at least I don't. Yeah. Do you feel like after a certain point in time, you're able to broaden the scope a little bit? Um, or is that still the thing that, that you gravitate to um, at this time? I th- oh, so that's a really good question. Um, next to my childhood and all that stuff that everybody writes about, let's be honest, um, I'm, I'm a very religious Jew mm. um, in a reform sort of way. <laughs> like I'm not, I have my own relationship with that and, um, mm-hmm. and friends that I study Torah with. And, that has become a really important part of my writing and also a really Mm. important way of experiencing the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, it kind of ties into another thing that I noticed that um, one of your bios mentioned that you did attend rabbinical school for a year 
Um, <laughs> is that is that something that you want to get into? <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> or if it had an impact, I guess maybe that's where I should go with it. Uh, yeah, actually. Um, so being the restless soul that I apparently am, I don't know how it happened, but um, at our temple, Temple Israel of Hollywood, which is a big temple, they didn't have simple Saturday morning services. They had, the Saturday morning was always a bar about mitzvah. Mm. I don't know if this means anything to you, but it's, it's a like, little bit. <laughs> but this, there was not just come in, worship for an hour, and go home. And people really wanted that. Mm. And we had a lay led service that we ran that was that the, that the temple supported. So I ended up being, you know, the rabbi. Mm. And um, my husband was the cantor. And we would run these services every Saturday. And then everyone, and then once during the high holidays, there's always one Shabbat between all of the other things between between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and the rabbis let us run that one because it's a lot for them. Mm -hmm. So we ran that Friday night. It was all very cool. And at some point, it's like I have hit a wall here. I am saying the same words. If I'm going to be serious about this, I should go to rabbinical school. Mm -hmm. Oh, that'll be fun. There's um, there's a part-time set. <laughs> so I went and I applied and I got in. And um, then a couple of things happened. So they were at this temple in Venice the, the, and it was really easy to get to. Meanwhile, I was still writing, but between my work which is a full-time professor at a university situation mm -hmm. with research and a lab. At the time, I think I had 22 people in my lab. Wow. And um, this, it, so it was like, do I want to be a rabbi or do I want to write to God? Mm. There's got to be the 24-hour day is just a clusterfuck. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I need to make some decisions here. Mm -hmm. And um, there were things about the rabbinical um, 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 training that I didn't like that were kind of disillusioning, actually. Mm. And, I, and I also have a really good friend who's a rabbi, and you are a rabbi. Once you're a rabbi, you're a rabbi, 24-7. Do I? You know. And yeah. then they moved to Hillel, which is at UCLA, it, where it's really hard to park and get around, mm -hmm. and I broke my hip. These two oh, things. No. Yeah. Oh. I, you know... <laughs> I think not rabbinical school. <laughs> and so I think, you know, but writing. And then I have to be serious, serious, serious about writing. Yeah. So that it seems like there came a time to prioritize and things were converging. At, you said around the early 2010s, like 2013, that this yeah. was kind of happening? Yep. Okay. All right. So we're looking at, at almost a decade of commitment to to the writing. And so I wanted to talk a bit about your full length, which is your, your full length manuscript general release from the beginning of the world, which is a beautiful <laughs> lush title that I really, Thank you. I really enjoy. Um, can you tell me a bit about where that fits in this timeline and how you went about putting together this manuscript? I'd love to. So um, the oldest poem there was in my chat book. So, but I would say the, the, the oldest poem in that book is about eight years old. Mm. 
I put that book together in Dorland at the at the writer's place mm. um, two years before it got picked. And um, what I did was I printed out all the poems that I liked, that I you know that I had some faith in, and then just started thinking how to put this together. You know, what are the themes? How do I braid it? Do I want to braid it? Do I want to have sections? You know, I'd never done this. What do I do? <laughs> um, you know, do I put jam on it? Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I I put it together the first time. And then there's sort of a gap in my memory, but what I do know is that I went to Frost Place. And I, and I studied with Tyree Day. And that was before, before I put the manuscript together, right before. Mm. Or actually, yeah, I don't, I'm not exactly sure, but he said he would look at it. And um, the first poem is always sort of terrorizing. <laughs> What's going to be the first poem? And so that first poem was one that I'd written actually in his workshop. It's always been the first poem, always, mm. always. So I sent him the manuscript and he said, you need to go through this and color code it with all the themes. Color code it, what are the important themes? And every line has to be color coded, mm. everything. And there's of course a color for not particularly a theme, but you have to go through the whole book, choose your themes. It's an iterative process. So you read through these, the themes that come out, these are the colors I'm gonna give it. And then you go back and you color code it. That was so great because I was stuck, mm. you know, I did, I, I had this manuscript and I knew it wasn't finished and I didn't know what it needed. Um, so I went through and I color coded it. It was like recess for poets, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and um, realized, you know, this poem really super doesn't fit or I'm going to have to write more poems to make it fit, mm. you know, and there all, there's holes, there's holes in this manuscript. Definitely things that I can't write. And the things that I couldn't write were family, about my family for the most part. Mm -hmm. At the time I was working with a really good friend of mine, um, wonderful poet, um, Alison Albino in New York. And she was going through old, old, old photographs and writing these poems to the photographs and sending them to me and saying, what do you think? And I was like, oh man, you've been trying to write this for a long time and now it's there and it's great. And, <laughs> And at the time, my husband and I were going through boxes and boxes of my mother's to try this mm. that I'd had for decades but couldn't face to try and clean it, you know, get rid of some stuff. Mm -hmm. He was like mm -hmm. the, like the master. We built one in the solo stove outside. And some stuff we would burn and, you know. And she said, Allison said, you should try this. And I said, hmm. So I used indeed some of those documents and pictures that I found while digging through my mom's shit. Mm. And the, that really helped me to write those last. So all the poems with illustrations, I think there are about eight of them. Mm -hmm. Those were written last. So you feel that this seems to me like this exemplifies a great form of docu-poetry. Is that what you would consider it? No, I would consider it more visual poetry. Or, mm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. Because in a way it's docu-poetry, but I don't, it's not, I mean, I take it in another direction, right? Okay. So can you describe, because it, you, you did do several chapbooks or maybe a, a handful of chapbooks before this. So you, did it feel like you were prepping for that manuscript to tackle these difficult things that you needed to address? <laughs> that's such a good question. Unfortunately, that's what I thought I was doing, <laughs> but 
No. <laughs> no. I was writing, a ch I was, you know, flexing my poetry muscles and mm. learning how to put a book together. And, but not really. Only one of the poems from my chapbook survived. And that's true, two. Mm. And those, so maybe, maybe, but less so than I'd hoped. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Still seems like a trial by fire that, you know, at the end of it, uh, it's very difficult to confront no matter the preparation, right? Oh, man. And so when, um, right before I, I went to McDowell with uh, my friend Flower, we do collaborative work. Mm. I got to go to McDowell. That happened. Shit. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. But anyway, right before I went to McDowell, I finished writing those ekphrastic poems. That's what they are. They're ekphrastics. Mm. And um, I had like maybe three or four hours of not packing and not doing this. I think, you know what? Let's just re let's let's put these in the manuscript and see what it looks like. Mm -hmm. I swear to God. Usually, when I'm sure you write, right? Uh -huh. You you go through it's painstaking. You go through your manuscript and you say, "This poem is, I love it. I love it, but it's not working." You know, I love it. Or Susie loved it, so it's a good poem. <laughs> and I just yeah, thought, you know. On. I don't have a lot of time. These poems have to go in. What just guide me light. And so I went through and I swear to God, it was like, I don't believe in you. You're out. You go here. You're out. It was like, it wasn't all that pain. It wasn't all that agonizing. Like in, out, in, out. Put the poem, put it together, sent it to a few presses, and Free Verse Press was the first place I sent it. And they mm. took it. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, to to go at that speed and with that kind of determination um, to go from not feeling like you could face poetry or confront it or, or be a part of it, be liberated by it to that mm -hmm. moment of publication where you get that light at the end of the, of the tunnel that tells you that you're going to be a poet published and it's going out into the world. Did you have any kind of revelation? Is there any use to see those things as revelations or? moments of epiphany or achievement in a way i mean there have been others like like getting into bread loaf the second time <laughs> like having poetry northwest take a poem mm -hmm. you know there's you know like having flower conroy want to work with me there's you know there's been others along the way mm. but in, indeed nothing like having a full manuscript accepted because mm. i remember when i got that email or call, I forget now what happened. I, it was an email. Mm. And um, the funny thing was I was sitting with my friend, Darcy again. When the chapbook got taken, I was sitting with her. And I said, um, I, you need to read this email. <laughs> <laughs> and that sort of happened again. It was like, oh my God. And I thought, who the hell's free verse editions? <laughs> I don't remember submitting to them. And I was really careful where I sent things. It was weird. That was weird. Mm. And, Br and Brenda Hillman chose it. So there. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> that to me is like so awesome. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. I mean, I, I think walking away from something like that or experiencing something like that uh, must have been such a delight for you. But I have just a couple more questions to be mindful of your time. And uh, Donna, this is such an inspiring and beautiful conversation that you've shared with me. And I'm, 
Thank you. Really grateful to have uh, to have met you and to have learned more about your journey. Um, I'm curious. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'm very curious of of what are some things that you're looking to do this year for your craft. I know that some folks don't believe in resolutions or intentions for the year, but because it's still early on in the year, I'm asking folks, what are some things that you'd like to do for you and your craft this year? Right. You know, I just, I just need it all to fucking calm down. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, I, I need, um, I mean, there's this wonderful sort of debate going on in my mind. Jory Graham is in this fantastic podcast with uh, David Naiman, talks about how she gets from one book to another. She said, you know, like that, she did a persona poem book. She mm -hmm. said, and then I wrote persona poem after persona poem, after persona poem, after that book was done. It was like, I had to write my way out of that. And those <laughs> will never see the light of day. I have to write my way into a new, a new voice, a new song. And I thought, this is gospel. Mm. And then Carl Phillips says, bullshit. You know, you just write. You are, you know, there are people out there who said to my publisher, don't let him write another one of those books. They're all the same. But they're not. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I'm really curious which of those people I'm going to be. Mm. I thought, you know, I felt really liberated hearing Carl say, you know, you are who you are. You are. Carl's been in many ways, my guardian angel. I, I did bread loaf with him the year that it was remote. Mm. And if you've seen my book, I capitalize you when I'm speaking to the holy. Mm. And I have a certain, I, certain kind of syntax. And in this workshop, somebody said, you know, you don't have to capitalize. It's like, this is not up for discussion. <laughs> there are many things that are, but this is just not, this is, and Carl says, fight for your syntax. Mm. And that, you know, has been sort of my mantra. You have to be, you have to hear people when they say this isn't working. You have to, but in some ways, you know, you have to fight for your syntax. So I'm trying to mm. figure out who I'm going to be next or if I am already that person. Or, yeah. At what point I, you are in that transition or if, yeah. if it's a, a balance or a dance where you yeah. kind of go across that spectrum. But. Right. And really trying not to write about death mm. and i'm really failing <laughs> <laughs> i'm really failing <laughs> well i think it's it's a very noble pursuit to make sure that you remind us if you are indeed writing about it uh, because sometimes we as humans love to forget that that's uh, such a pivotal part of our lives mm. um one last thing here because mm -hmm. i um god gosh this has just been a uh, really incredible time. Oh, you're kind. How would you describe success for a writer? And from your mm -hmm. from your own point of view, I mean, you've taken some some uh, divergences and, and journeys across different disciplines. But as a writer, what is success? How are you defining that these days? You know, I get the image of a snail. And the snail's got two antennae. And to be honest, the, the antenna that's got awards on it and, you know, that points towards some kind of renown in this tiny poetry world, I like that antenna. Mm. But the other antenna is just the, 
finding your writing and just keep, just doing it and digging as deep as you can and being brave and and being open and reading and having new things come to you so i like both of those antenna and and then there's always the shell which is surprisingly wonderful and gooey <laughs> oh that's amazing well donna i i think that's a beautiful note to end on and i want to thank you so much for your time because in conversations like these we we get a glimpse of of the human being that you are and this has been truly inspiring for me to get to follow your journey thank you for taking me on that that adventure at least just a taste of it and of course i want to thank you for your work this this beautiful uh culmination of your poetry life which is general release from the beginning of the world it sounds phenomenal and i just want to thank you for putting us on the right track and uh and for being awesome Thank you so much for your time and for interviewing me. It was really fun. You're a great interviewer. Well, I, I try, but you make it real easy because you have a lot of beautiful <laughs> stories and <laughs> a wonderful trajectory. So thank you again, Donna, for thank everything. You. And uh, I hope we get to chat down the road, okay? I hope so too. Okay. Thanks again. I'll be in touch real soon. Great. <laughs> have a good Sunday. Take care. Thank you. You too. Bye.